friends to another episode of Recovery Daily Podcast. My name is Rachel Miller. I'm a stroke survivor and a grateful recovering alcoholic. I began this podcast to break the silence of my own suffering, to both save myself from a relapse after becoming visually impaired from a stroke, and to reach others that are suffering in silence. I want to thank you for helping me stay sober and channel my energy to make a positive impact in the world. Today I'm examining the importance of seeking professional help and building your own support team. And I have tried so hard to the point of further damaging my health, both physically and mentally, to do things on my own. Um, I've talked about it before. It seems like we grow up trying to learn how to be independent. And then as I get older, I realize I actually need to learn how to lean on other people. Um, but I've learned, I've learned the hard way as I do most things that there are certain things in life that truly require the expertise of professionals. And I never seem to seek help until I'm freaking miserable, whether it's counseling, legal advice, medical care, even going into detox. It all happened like far after I could have actually asked for help in the beginning. Um, In my marriage, my divorce, my house that flooded with sewage, I haven't talked about that story yet. (laughs) My alcoholism, my stroke recovery, it seems like the only one that I actually did on time to reduce the brain damage that I was experiencing or that I could have experienced was my stroke. Um, Things could have been a lot worse, you know, and What I have learned in stroke recovery is to assemble a team of experts. There's a guy in my sobriety meeting in the morning who, who calls it his team. Um, so I've, I've really liked that. I've started calling it team Rachel. (laughs) And, um, if someone isn't playing, you know, their position on my team a hundred percent, then they're out and I can bring in someone new, whether that is, a doctor or, you know, somebody in my life that, um, that isn't adding value to my recovery, we'll just say. So I can tell you that I've had to replace my neurologist on my team twice before I actually found somebody that I felt like we were meshing well. Um, now I do acknowledge that I gave up on the second neurologist fairly quickly and that was not his fault. I, it was my own fault because I was getting impatient and frustrated and I didn't care for when he told me that I needed to have my post stroke headache for at least a year before he was going to address it. Um, you can imagine, you know, I was like, but, uh, I have a headache, you know, um, the headache wasn't as bad back then. You know, it's hard for me to even remember now because it's been like two and a half years with a headache. Like 
when it was worse. I mean, I know now that before my migraine injections that the headache and migraines now are way worse than they were two and a half years ago. But I had a headache back then. (laughs) And then after, you know, when I hit the one-year mark, he did address it by prescribing some pills and they didn't do anything. And I told him that they didn't do anything and he said, I've, I've talked about this before, so forgive me for repeating myself. But he said, um, well, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And he just increased the dosage. And it still didn't do anything. So that's when I gave up on him. And um, fast forward to today, uh, two different prescriptions that didn't work. And now an injection that I'm taking that kind of works. Um, uh, My current neurologist just added another prescription to take on top of the injection. And so they're trying to manage my pain. They, she, my new neurologist um, is is trying to manage my pain. And I know we'll get there and I'm not going to give up again. I do feel like it some days, you know, today I had a headache all day long, but, um, I always have a headache, but it's, it just is different levels every day. And today was just a more irritating level. It was like a straight up, like almost pounding headache today. So seeking help, um, I know although it feels like it sometimes is not a sign of weakness. It's a demonstration, honestly, of strength and commitment to my well-being. And moreover, it means that I love myself. And I believe that I deserve to live pain-free. And I've talked about it before in earlier episodes. I haven't always believed that about myself. I haven't always believed that I deserve to feel good, you know, um, that's sad, but it's true for a long time. Um, so as a stroke survivor with no answers yet on what the diagnosis is of my neurological vision impairment, um, I'm continuing to build a team. And I'm adding to it these new uh, neuro-focused physicians next month. My neuro-ophthalmologist and my (laughs) neuro-psychiatrist. I know those who are paying attention, I'm rotating back and forth between neuro-psychiatrists and (laughs) neuro-psychologists. I'm pretty sure it's psychiatrist. Anywho, and um, with... Of course, the unwavering support from my boyfriend of 17 years, we will keep building that team. And I can't believe I, you know, I guess it's been like the past week. I just keep thinking about how I cannot believe that I suffered for two years in denial before I waved the white flag and admitted that I can't keep going without help. Um, it was just, it was one of the hardest decisions that I've ever had to make because I knew that my entire life had to change. And you know what? That was my perspective 
at the time and it has been honestly until until fairly recently almost until like when I wrote this out in my script today about how it wasn't changing my entire life was it it was changing the stuff that I put first and moving that to last. It was rearranging my priorities. That's what had to change. My entire life has not changed. Um, but it certainly looked like that five months ago when I had to walk away from my job. It looked like my entire life was changing. Um, and, and my boyfriend even said to me, when somebody brought my box of stuff from my office from work and I was going through it and identifying what needed to be shredded um, and what I could just throw in the trash can. And I said, it feels like everything I worked for, I'm just throwing in the trash. And I know I've said this before in the podcast, but it's worth saying again because it was so powerful to me. And he said, you're looking at it all wrong, Rachel. He said, what you were working for all along is all around you. And um, I just, stuff like that makes me just love the shit out of him. <laughs> He's so wonderful. So, um, so yeah, it's not easy to put our health and our well-being first. And when we do and seek help, as if that wasn't stressful enough, not all professionals that we see are equally as helpful. You know, sometimes a second opinion is not just a nice to have choice, but it's a necessity. Um, earlier on when I was drinking, this is an, another angle on seeking a second opinion that I would not recommend. But early on when I was drinking heavily and I was unhappy in my marriage and I went to counselors, um, I went to what comes to mind is four different, okay, three different counselors um, when I was still married. And so I went to this one who uh, she was like, she I explained what was going on. I did not ad address my drinking, okay? my Because my problem, of course, was everything else, not me. The problem was not me, right? The problem was either my husband or, you know, my work or whatever, my family. It was always somebody else that was the problem, not me. And that's how I went into these counselor sessions. Um, well, you can imagine none of them worked. So the first one, she, she came at me with a response like, I think she thought that I wanted to hear, yeah, girl power, you know, you need to stand up for yourself. And she made my husband at the time sound like a terrible, terrible person, <laughs> And although I was at the time very frustrated and angry at him, 
I didn't need somebody else to get getting all talking shit about him, you know. <laughs> it's funny when I think back to it. But I stopped going to her because I was like, who are you to talk about him that, <laughs> that way? Anyway, so I call her the man, the man hater counselor. Then I went to another counselor who I call the eccentric art counselor. And she, when you walk in, so she was a counselor out of the basement of her house. And when you drive up and you park, you get out and you're supposed to like walk through her backyard down to her back door. And then that was when, where her like, her basement was set up like an office and a waiting room. And it was super beautiful. And like the backyard was just very um, well taken care of and groomed. And she had this massive wind chime that was like, it was so big that it sounded like a gong when the wind blew. I'm still looking for one because I want one. It was so cool. Um, But that was like your first impression is this like, gong you know and I'm like hmm and so I go into the waiting room slash basement of her house and there's like all these supplies for artwork and so it turns out she does like group therapy and she uses art as like a channel so um, I would have loved to go to one of those sessions that wasn't what I needed I needed to um, deal with my unhappy marriage you know that was my perspective on things so we would go back in there and I had an incredible amount of anxiety I was having panic attacks I could just I could barely function at this time in my life and I was drinking very heavily Um, you can just assume that that is the underlying that's that was always happening I was always heavily drinking but During this time, I was getting closer to, um, you know, I I wasn't taking action on anything. So my anxiety, my depression, all of that terrible stuff was building up in my dark place. That dark place that I talk about, this shit was in there and it was in there for years and it was starting to build up to the point that it was going to explode. And it, that's what it, when I envision myself back then, I envision like my trembling um, that you could actually see in my hands um, felt like it was that stuff in my dark place that was about to explode. And my trembling was a sign of that. Um, what my trembling actually was was both anxiety but it was also withdrawal and I never ever knew that it was withdrawal I always thought it was anxiety that is fascinating to me that that is what alcohol was doing to me and I had no idea I was completely blind to it um so this lady was she what we would take the first 10 minutes of my session and I would have to meditate. I would have to sit there with my eyes closed and she would walk me through a meditation because I couldn't even think straight. You know, I don't know if you know that 
level of anxiety that you can get to where you can't even think straight. Like for me, like the room almost starts spinning. I had so much anxiety, like I was shutting down like cognitively. And um, anyway, so we would do this like meditation and then I was good. I, w I was good enough to be able to talk to her and she was great. I feel like she was a great counselor, but then guess what? She asked me how much I drank and that was the end of our relationship. Isn't that terrible? I went to her for months and months and she was so helpful um, to help me navigate this marriage that I felt was was crumbling and um, and and I wanted out of the marriage and I didn't know what to do. Um, so then after that, I went to another therapist and this one was a couples counselor. So I went to go see her and then uh, my husband at the time came in and um, well, that lady told me that, um, we were talking, you know, she was being the, an appropriate therapist, which allowed me to talk and then allowed my, my husband to talk. Well, I interrupted my husband and she told me not to interrupt him. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going back to her. It was just terrible. I was so sick. You know, I was just so sick. Um, anyway, uh, so these, these therapists, what is my point? My point is to tell you how some uh, counseling sessions, you know, you can seek help, but if you're not willing to listen, you're not willing to receive the help, then what's the point? And that was the thing. I was seeking help but I wasn't willing to receive it. And, um, and so finally, after I went to detox the second time, because why do I, I, you know, I would, I have to learn everything the hard way. I have to go twice. I have to go once and have it not work and then go twice and have it actually work so far, you know, so far I'm still sober, but, um, they told me to go to an addiction therapist. And so I went to a lady for two years every week I went to go see her. And, um, isn't that funny? That's the longest time I ever went to a therapist because we had the drinking question already out of the way. She already knew how much I drank. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's my experience with, with, you know, seeking help, getting a second opinion, but doing it the wrong way, you know, these various women that I saw got booted if they didn't tell me what I wanted to hear. You know, if they asked me how much I drank, forget about it. Who's next? So when we seek help, we need to be willing to receive the help. Second opinions are vital to get the right care, but it's important to reflect on your intention for getting a second opinion. Am I being open and willing to do whatever it takes to put my health first? Or is there some sort of resistance that I've built up um, to what I'm hearing?
from uh, from the professional that that I've sought help from is is it just something um, you know like what I dealt with with my neurologist which was so my first neurologist this is the guy who saw me when I was in the hospital right after I had my stroke well I shouldn't say right after I had my stroke because I was in the hospital for five days after I had my stroke I did not need to be in the hospital for five days but guess what my neurologist kept not showing up to come see me so I had a clot in my brain and the neurologist was the one who didn't see me for five days. So this is the guy that was assigned to me in the hospital. And once I finally saw, he came for five minutes, five minutes. He set down his classic medical bag. It's the first time I've ever seen a doctor with a classic med medical bag. He set it down, asked me a couple questions, and then he left. That was it. That's what I sat in there for probably two extra days waiting for that guy to show up. So I, I saw him after I got out of the hospital for a follow-up and I loved his bedside manner. Like he was a really cool, really sweet guy. And he seemed like he cared about me as a human being, but he just did not have enough time for all of the patients he had taken on. And I couldn't even get anyone to answer the freaking phone when I would call that place. And when they would answer the phone, the receptionist was a little biatch. <laughs> and, um, you know, my brain was at stake. My brain. I only have one brain. And it controls all of the parts of my body. And I could not keep calling an office that didn't answer the phone. So, uh, I had to find an, another one, you know, and, and the next one, you know, he was good, but I feel like he wasn't all in. He wasn't, he wasn't treating me like a human being. I felt like he was treating me like, like I was just another one of his patients. It, I wasn't unique. And, and yes, I realize I'm not unique to him. I'm, I am just another neurologist and neurology patient, but I need to be treated like I'm a unique patient. You know, I need to be treated like a human being, like a unique human being with my own, um, recovery plan. So, um, now I'm seeing another neurologist. It's a woman who's actually at the same office as the second guy. But I just like her. She seems like she's really searching for answers. You know, at least she's making me feel like that. Um, so I do recognize that reaching out for help is akin to like handing over the controls. And but really, for me, I was plummeting straight down if I didn't do something, both as an alcoholic and as a stroke survivor with chronic pain. I didn't have control of anything anyway. It was false pride, you know, like I talked about yesterday. It was just like my ego, like I didn't want to give in. Um, but I wasn't going to get better. Nothing was going to change 
unless I change something, you know? Um, and then aside from my professional team, which we're calling Team Rachel, uh, healing on the inside, so that's the physical stuff. Healing on the inside, for me, comes from fellowship. And fellowship, this is interesting. And if my sister's listening, which she listens to a lot of these podcasts, but the word fellowship, you're going to laugh at me, sissy. But the word fellowship to me always reminded me of church. And it was a word that I was afraid of. It was a word that made me feel like, I I know this sounds silly, but I'm here to just like be completely honest and vulnerable. It made me feel like I could only, like it was a religious thing. I didn't understand the meaning of fellowship. I didn't. It seemed like a word that was not cool to me. You know, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't for me. You know what? Hey, people, fellowship isn't for me. That's what I felt like, you know, but because I've gone to Alcoholics Anonymous and I don't say the actual name of it a lot for a reason because, uh, you know, it's not a secret for me. I choose to, I choose to be public about my experience because I want to help as many people as possible And so I'm going to talk about it, but I don't talk about anybody else in it. You know, I'm never going to name anybody else in it. Um, So it's fine if I say it, but just for the it seems weird to say the words Alcoholics Anonymous (laughs) out loud. So I usually call it my sobriety program. Anywho, um, what was I saying? Totally lost my train of thought. Oh, fellowship. So (laughs) as... Being a part of this program has taught me what fellowship is. When I say, be of service to my fellows, I, it takes on a whole new meaning for me than I ever understood. You know, it's almost embarrassing what I used to think fellowship meant. But today, it is a lifeline to me. I I have a very slight feeling of getting choked up because it means so much to me. It is a family to me. I believe that I would not be here if it was not for Alcoholics Anonymous. I do not believe that I would have survived for sure if I did not join that program. And all of this stuff that that is inside of me um, that, that I discover is because I have this fellowship that I get to discover it with. I say, hey, I found this thing inside of me. And somebody else says, hey, I, I found that too. You know, we are, we are truly on an expedition inside of ourselves to discover these things 
these feelings and all we're so complex it's just it's fascinating that that we so many people go along without a fellowship without having this guide for living that I'm always talking about that none of us have how how do we go so far without seeking help from other people without without comparing notes you know well I lived through this and I handled it this way oh well I lived through the same thing and I handled it this way um I just I have to have it I have to have it now once I know that that's there and what it's like I have to have it and and I seek it in my stroke recovery now too um and it's important that I you know so this is this is emotional sobriety this part where where we're we're on this expedition and we're trying to um self-reflect and self-love and all of that stuff and um it started by me getting physically sober and seeking that help outside of myself but in order to get um, I'm trying to I'm trying to articulate this so I sought outside of myself for my physical sobriety I've sought outside of myself for my emotional sobriety I needed it I needed to compare notes with somebody else because I couldn't figure it out on my own I couldn't and but however so all of the stuff I'm seeking outside of myself however joy joy can only be found inside me and the only way that I found that was by was by working with other people on my emotional and physical sobriety and 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 health and that's when I was able to uncover the joy that's inside of me. I can't find joy in other people. I can't find joy in other things. It's only inside of me. So my emotional sobriety that followed my physical sobriety is where my fellowship helps me and because I found that help in sobriety I've turned towards the same solution for my stroke so I've turned towards a stroke survivor community for emotional recovery and I'm learning more and more about how I'm not unique in the fact that this stroke changed me as a person and I was in denial 
that it changed me. Um, but I'm by working with others and, and taking time to self reflect, it's getting easier and I can address old behaviors that that may creep back in as I'm being, you know, completely jolted into this new identity, this Rachel 3.0 that I always talk about. And I have to address the old behaviors because I could drink again. And that's why that's why I'm here right now in this seat talking into this microphone <laughs> because I don't want to drink. That's what it all comes down to for me because if I drink I'm going to die, period. And it's continuous, this communicating with others and being open to help, learning about myself, Rachel 3.0, and prioritizing my health in everything I do. In everything I do, I have to prioritize my health. That's what I have to do now. It used to be my job, and it's not anymore. It's, you know, my health is my job. I, I remember when the doctor told me that when I first um, went on short-term disability. She's like, this is your new job. But I didn't get it. You know, I don't get things very quickly. And when attention goes away um, from me, as far as like when, when I stopped getting flowers, when I went on for short-term disability... And when I stopped getting cards and people stopped visiting and, and people st- stopped offering help, you know, as many people. I still have people that just have never left my side. But, you know, people start moving on. And what happens to people in recovery when that stops? That was, that was making me sad to think about that. I was fearful of the moment when I realized that people have moved on and I'm still here. I'm still in recovery and I'm going to be for the rest of my life. What happens then? You know, I felt it still makes me sad. I, I, I have this like underlying kind of sadness tonight, um, but not because I'm depressed. It's just, it's a hell lot of heavy stuff. It's a lot of heavy stuff. And that's why I'm here to talk about this stuff so that I don't carry it with me. But when all of that goes away and I'm still sitting here, I have to still get up out of bed. I have to still get dressed. I have to do the work. I can't get complacent. I can't wait for my phone to ring. If people stop calling me, then I got to pick up the phone and call people. My new job is surviving and rebuilding. My new job is not not moving on, but moving even though and moving despite of and carrying my pain with intentions of healing and becoming a better version of myself. It's easy to work hard and then coast for a while when I get tired or when I get less motivated. But when I stop the momentum and try to stay sober, 
and try to stay healthy on yesterday's work, my movement forward in life will gradually slow until it comes to a stop. And I never want to stand still again, like I did for the first 42 years of my life. I get to put the work in today, every day, and watch what I build out of my life. I have to be patient and I have to be persistent in recovery. I need to keep being open to help from the professional medical community and embracing fellowship. And like I said, it's not something I ever imagined that I would hear myself say, but it's true. I can't do it on my own. And so that is what I like to call that. Thanks for joining me on another spellbinding episode. Please check, follow if you haven't yet, and tell all your friends how cool I am. Thank you. I'll talk to you tomorrow.